72 Voices is a project by 72 and Sunny, who are a creative accelerator with offices in Sydney, LA, Singapore, Amsterdam and NYC. This series champions the new generation of creative entrepreneurs in Australia. In the chats, we identify smarts and insights that we hope in some small way will inspire the next generation of Australian entrepreneurial success stories. Welcome to 72 Voices, the podcast series, with our CEO, Chris Kay, produced by our friends at Otis Studios. Up next, we have Matt Jones, co-founder of Four Pillars Gin. This week's chat is with Matt Jones, co-founder of Four Pillars Gin. Matt has had a varied career as a creative strategist, entrepreneur, and speaker with a global background in political campaigning, communications, brand experience, and business. In this conversation, he shares his passion for purpose, social impact, storytelling and creativity, and obviously awesome gin. Hopefully you get as much out of our chat as I did. Well, look, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. If you can just start with uh, your name and what do you do, and then we can roll from there, Matt. Sure, my name's Matt, Matt Jones. I'm one of three co-founders at Four Pillars Gin. Um, I think my job title, or at least my email signature, is is co-founder and brand director. But um, yeah, I'm one of the three guys behind Four Pillars and and continue to to play a role in what is an increasingly large and professional team in our little, (laughs) little gin business. How old is the company, Matt? It will be seven in December if you measure by when we launched onto the market, but we've been playing with gin since I guess 2012. So kind okay. of eight years in eight years in creation and coming up towards seven years on the market. And and what was that minus year one like? Because you you went on a journey around the US, didn't you? Too. Well, look, really... I didn't. I didn't. Stu and Cam. So the, there's a bit of a a bit of a sort of repeating history in Four Pillars where I will. I will want to be the guy who who thinks and and Stu would probably say overthinks stuff, but there's a there's a place for overthinking in every business. And Stu's the more instinctive guy, and and Cam's the more pragmatic guy. Cam's the guy who got his body around a 400 metres track fast enough to represent Australia at the Atlanta Olympics. And so wow. he's he's always the the pragmatist, and and Stu's the optimist, and and I I guess I'm the the creative strategist in the piece. Yeah. Stu and Cam in in 2012. Um, well, first of all, we we. I'd met Stu a while a while back, and and he was running a PR agency at the time that was focused on food and drink and, and lifestyle brands called Liquid mm-hmm. Ideas. I'd just come back from the US and and had set up my own little brand purpose, brand strategy, creative. I don't know, you call it a consultancy or an agency. Yeah. It was too small to be an agency, but there was, you know, it quickly became more than one person, so it was more than just me. Yeah. Um, and we met and we started doing some some work together. And Stu introduced me to Cam, and we had dinner and we had drinks and we talked about gin. And pretty quickly we thought. Let's have a look at it. Let's have a mm-hmm. look at the category. And, and at the time, it felt like when you looked to the UK, you saw a very traditional gin market sort of driven by this one style of gin called London Dry. Whereas when yeah. you looked across the Atlantic from Britain, across the Pacific from us, you looked at the US, there was this craft movement going on and, and craft beer had happened and was still happening mm-hmm. and craft gin and craft spirits were happening. So we decided, okay, well, let's send Stu and Cam over. It's only buy two plane tickets. They're the ones <laughs> who camp when it comes to to the liquid. And uh, and they, they started off in Seattle and they drove all the way down to Los Angeles and visited about 35 gin distilleries along okay. the way and, and just got a sense of what was driving that American craft, craft boom. And where did the passion for gin come from? Was it an opportunity in the market or was it a passion in one of the partners? 
Look, it's it's an interesting one. Um, all three of us were gin drinkers. Yeah. I was probably a less enthusiastic gin drinker, um, which it might even just be down to, to age. I'm a little bit younger than Stu and Cam, not by much, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and maybe I hadn't quite grown up in my drinking in the way that, that mm. they had. I think, you know, it's sort of Cameron often talks about gin is typically the spirit of choice of, of wine lovers, and they'd both kind of come out of wine and, and loved wine and, and loved gin. Um, I think we all saw that something was happening in gin, but we didn't begin with this aggressive commercial opportunity. Yeah. I, I think for Stu and Cam, it was a desire to make something. And they'd played, they'd toyed with wine. And Cam wanted to get serious about something. Mm-hmm. Stu thought it'd be fun. For me, I, I came more from a, a background like yours. I came from a world of, you know, I was a reformed political strategist turned brand creative strategy person. I'd, I'd spent seven years working in... in a brand experience agency, so I was really interested in the this notion of brands built through experience and, yeah. and and what we kind of coined experience brands, brands that were really had that sort of experience DNA hardwired into them. I was really interested in those more sort of contemporary ideas about how do we build a brand in almost this kind of post advertising world or, yeah. or sort of changed changed brand building world. And I guess for me, I just got excited about this blank canvas of a, of a brand to actually play with, to, to sort of apply some theory. You can only advise for so long yeah, before yeah. going, wait a minute, do I need to test some of this theory slash bullshit on <laughs> myself and put some of my money where yeah, yeah. my mouth is? And, yeah. and within that, gin quickly excited me because it felt like it inhabited this perfect sweet spot between true product differentiation and mm-hmm. I mean, you'd come across this with yeah. many of the brands that you, you know, especially in the technology space at the moment, you'll meet people with a, 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 a software idea or a SaaS idea, and they feel that their their product, their concept is so differentiated, it needs no brand help. Mm-hmm. It does, by the way. It, it definitely <laughs> does. But they might feel it doesn't. And then at the other end, you've got people who are very conscious that what they're making is almost entirely commoditized, and it's all artifice, yeah. and it's all brand. It's all yeah, storytelling. Yeah. Gin felt very much in the middle. You know, we could make a genuinely differentiated gin. And that passion only grew when Stu and Cam came back from that road trip and went, holy crap, like the, these guys in America, they're not making London-style gin. They're mm-hmm. making really distinctive local expressions yeah, yeah. of gin. Think about what we could make here. This is the most delicious place on earth, modern Australia. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So we can make something really differentiated. But you also knew straight off the bat that if you didn't get the brand right, if you didn't get the, the creative storytelling right, if you didn't get the positioning right, the gin category, especially at that super premium end, is so sensitive that, that it wasn't going to fly. So it was a really nice area to test some theory and to recognise that the product would always come first, the craft would come first, but there was still going to be a great contribution that needed to be made from a, from a brand and creative point of view. So that got me excited and it happened that it was gin and it happened as a gin drinker, but it wasn't about seeing that commercial opportunity. It was more about the, the chance to create something. Yeah, and, uh, and then... You gave up your day job at that moment, or was it? A, what was that decision like? Yeah, um, that decision was not taken. Um, <laughs> it was uh, in a, in a way we've only ever we've only ever taken the decisions around that that we've we've almost had to take, and sometimes maybe we've made them too late. So mm-hmm. we, we, you know, we, we're, we're back there in 2012. I'm really only at that point establishing my little yeah, consultancy. consultancy. Um, and that kept going until 
2018. Oh wow! Uh, so the first two years, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I, I don't think Stu or I charged a, a day's work to Four Pillars. It was all mm-hmm. sweat, and we were running our own businesses. Cameron, it quickly became clear if he was going to make the gin and and, yeah. and run the operation and and all of that stuff, he needed time and so I think he quickly went two days a week and then three and then full time. Yeah, yeah. Stu and I were much slower coming into the business and, and I think there's a couple of interconnecting decisions that sort of shaped Four Pillars and, and, and that decision not to load all of our cost into it early was was one of them. Yeah. Um, a, another one which is you know, directly related to that was the decision to, uh, to take on a bunch of small scale investors before we'd made any gin. So we brought 20 investors we called them we weren't very creative <laughs> with the name but but it, it fit and we brought 20 investors on board right at the start who took out two percent each so yeah. you know we we began with three co-founders owning 60 percent of the business and, yeah. and 20 quiet friends and family and professional mates um taking out a little little chunk each and the reason those two interconnected decisions were so important is it allowed us to build a brand for the long term it mm-hmm. meant that we didn't have that impatience yeah of a business that was burning cash quickly yeah, yeah, and yeah. had no cash reserve. Instead, yeah. we had a decent little war chest. We didn't have a lot of a lot of uh, of salary cost to carry, and it meant we could mm-hmm. actually make some long term decisions about building a brand rather than chasing sales and chasing volume too quick. Yeah, and then how did you choose those twenty investors? As you say, was it mates of mates or strategic from a perspective of who could help? Um, very unstrategic. Uh, yep. it, it turned out a, a few could help. Yeah. But look, I mean, I'm, I'm as someone. I don't think anyone who's done anything once is an expert in in <laughs> that thing. Um, but I think we, I think we chose well in terms of we chose people who were supportive, patient, and on the whole silent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not not in a not in a completely passive way, but what you know, there are strong enough opinions in our business and and and, and yeah. a limited amount that we could do at any one time. So probably we didn't need another twenty experts. It happens that some folks had expertise, some folks had relationships that we could lean on, and we still do to this day. But that wasn't yeah. that wasn't, wasn't the criteria. The, yeah, we yeah. didn't go out looking for almost you meet some people in that space and they're looking for these kind of investor consultant ambassador people and we definitely didn't do that we instead said who do we know who we've got no idea if this is a good idea or not we're we're asking for a reasonable chunk of money not a huge amount but enough that we want to make sure that you're comfortable to play with this and we've got no guarantee this will be anything other than fun we know it'll be fun after that, we don't know. So we we also tried to choose people that we thought would be yeah. patient and, and comfortable with this somewhat unpredictable journey. And what was the sell if you had no product at that time, if you hadn't made? Was just to sell the brand vision, the opportunity in the market, the story from the US? Yeah, a little bit, little bit of all of that. Um, yeah, interestingly, we, we had to do the same thing when we launched... Um, on the markets, we actually launched through crowdfunding. We launched through a possible campaign, and and you know, looking back, there's a lot of serendipity. There are a lot of kind of sliding doors moments in in the history of Four Pillars, and and the the first one is on return from the US. Stu and Cam, they were adamant we had to have a particular type of still. Um, we had to have a, a still made by Christian Karl of, of Stuttgart in Germany. And, and every time they'd tasted a gin that just blown them away in the States, they'd always kind of go, go to the back of this little shed and, and there was a Karl still. Yeah. And 
it turns out that what Carl Stills do really, really well, they're all copper, they're sort of Rolls-Royce gin machines, and what they do really well is they help you combine concentration of flavour and purity of spirit. And yeah. it's relatively easy to do one of those two things. It's quite hard to do both. And, okay. and Carl Stills do that really well. Yeah. It's incredibly delicious, concentrated flavours, but also this really purified, clean, mm -hmm. beautiful spirit. And particularly with all the flavour that we could play with in Australia, we're like, yeah. well, we've got to have a caster. We've got to have one of them. Um, because if we're going to truly differentiate <clears throat> based on product, if we're going to be a yeah, brand yeah. that from the outset hangs its hat on the gin, on the product, on the flavour, on the quality, yeah. we've got to have the best stuff. The bad news was a caster was A, expensive, hence the gin <laughs> investors, yeah. and B, had about a 12-month waiting list. Oh, wow. And that was an incredible blessing in disguise because... You know, I've, I've described Stu and Cam to you a bit. You know, you've got Stu, very, very charismatic, a, a wonderful relationship builder, very instinctive, very fast moving. You've got Cameron, um, actually incredibly good marketing instincts, but also a pragmatist with a natural suspicion of marketing bullshit. Um, <laughs> and and then you've got me, the sort of brand creative overthinker. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. with a 12-month kind of, pause button between yeah. making that decision to get the steel and, and our still who we named Wilma after Cameron's late mum and Wilma <laughs> showing up. It gave me the chance to kind of push the business through a conversation about purpose, yeah. about why we're doing this, about why is it important and necessary and exciting that Australia is going to join this craft gin movement mm -hmm. and Four Pillars is going to be the brand that does that. Yeah. And so this is my very long-winded way of answering your question. It was really that sense of purpose yeah. that we were able to then sell, sell. Yeah, yeah. both to our investors yeah. and then to our, to our first batch of, of customers on crowdfunding. And, and, and purpose became this wonderful you know, umbrella or wrapper or whatever you want to call it under which you could then talk about, well, this is the market opportunity and this mm -hmm. is this is this is the consumer insight and this is the insight into how we're drinking differently and we're drinking less and we're drinking better and we're drinking at home and the, yeah, yeah. the craft movement and what that yeah. represents as, as an opportunity, what that represents as something for, for customers to be a part of. But purpose just created that that sort of organizing sense around it that made it a much easier sell when you really didn't even have a a product yet. Yeah, but yeah. you gave people the sense they were buying into something yeah, yeah, bigger a belief. than yeah. any one product. It's interesting, you know, the rig of it you were forced to go through. Yeah. I think for a lot of early stage companies, you know, they don't have that forced upon them. So taking 12 months to get your purpose right, taking 12 months to get your sell right, uh, you know, as you say, for a lot of companies, especially those that bootstrap, it's as how quickly you can get the product to market versus the purpose and the story behind Look, it's, it. it. It's probably a, it's probably a combination of a few things. I'm, 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 I think in part it was rigor, in part it was just you know something to do to fill the time. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't have to fill that time, it would be easy to bypass. I think it was mm. also to do with the the DNA of the, the the founders and the fact that my practice, for want of a better term, was to to look at brand through those lenses of, of purpose and experience and say, yeah. well, why does this brand exist? Yeah. And how does that sense of purpose show up in the ways it interacts with its customers and its employees and its stakeholders? That was something I did every day. Yeah. Um, I think it was also a, a, a function of going into a category where, you know, I remember having not many people said no to investing. But mm -hmm. the ones who did would say the same thing consistently, which is, I just don't see how you're going to be different. 
<laughs> I don't see why people are going to choose your clear juniper flavored liquid and yeah. not Hendrix. Yeah, yeah. I don't get it. And I think sometimes people can kid themselves that their category is more rationally driven. I'm, I'm reading um, Rory Sutherland's book at the moment, Alchemy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he, he talks about this mistake that, that we make, not just in marketing, but in, in government policy. We make it everywhere that people are rational, that people are rational decision makers. Mm-hmm. And as we know, they're not. And I think sometimes some categories can have the appearance of rationality. In a way, in the spirits category, you're, you're fortunate. And you sort of know that yeah, there's yeah. a combination of, of rational but quite emotional yeah, drivers yeah. behind yeah, purchases. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suspect some of the people that, that, that you and I meet, they, they kid themselves, their categories more rational than mm-hmm. it actually is, which then gives them permission to sort of skip that step yeah, of yeah. defining purpose and, and defining creative experience and just jumping straight to operational yeah, yeah. And, and, and commercial thinking. So, yeah, really, as I say, this, the serendipitous thing was we, yeah. we had time, we had that right blend of mindsets, and I think we had enough self-awareness at a category level that there needed to be more thought behind this than just good gin and a pretty label that there did need to be clarity yeah. of purpose and story and all those things. It's interesting when you when you think about the three partners and again when you look at successful and maybe not successful uh, early stage companies that alchemy the chemistry and the blend of mindsets is really important and and on a lot of these conversations we've had uh, having that creative brain as part of that triumvirate as much as a logistical or technolo- technological or product brain seems really important you you know when we've talked to people uh we talked to a a friend of ours who who runs a fintech business and it was only when that brain came into the process that it accelerated the business uh and so i'm I'm intrigued by just your learning of those three different skills and that alchemy coming together in a way that made you guys successful yeah look it's i I, you know i'll probably overuse the term serendipity but i i think it was by good fortune not designed that 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 blend of of mindsets came together you know interestingly i think all three co-founders have incredibly strong creative dna yeah um you know i look at cameron's creativity um in terms of both the, the the gins and the flavors he puts together and the ways that he he thinks about them and and, and talks about them he he has a great creative uh, mind he's just not worked in the creative industries that's yeah, not yeah. his background Stuart obviously has as as have I so I think you've got three people with a shared creative language you had me who was then the sort of almost like the formal sense maker and, and mm-hmm. champion of that because I think something that's often really missing in a lot of businesses is clarity on how brand thinking and brand experience and creative thinking and creativity and all of these overlapping things, mm-hmm. all of these emotional, irrational, soft, squishy, hard-to-measure <laughs> things, all this stuff, most businesses lack clarity on how that is going to translate into commercial success. So, you know, I've, I quite often refer to that as a, I, I call it a theory of brand success, but we could call it a theory yeah. of creative success. Yeah. They don't have that clarity of theory. Yeah. And, and especially in worlds that are really hard to measure, you really need a theory that, that, that you're, you're going to be testing regularly. So I think my job was, was to be the one of the three 
all instinctively creative people who yeah. then clarify that clarity. theory. Yeah. And and then the other thing that was interesting there in, in terms of the alchemy was what was missing. <laughs> and what was missing was really anyone who was driven commercially. Yeah. So not only did you have an over-indexing of creative voices, you had a relative under-indexing of commercial and financially responsible voices. Which <laughs> did that harm you? No, I don't think it did. No, I, I was going to ask. Yeah, I think it. I think it fueled us. Yeah, I bet. Ridiculously, um, but it did that because of a couple of things I've already touched on. You know, the first that we had enough. We had enough of an idea about what an expensive business we're going into, mm -hmm. how hard it was going to be to make money in super premium craft gin, to enter a category in which Hendrix in Australia had about 80% market share. Yeah. You know, there, there was no, no one was looking for Australians to come in and make craft gin, that this was going to be a long slog and it was going to be expensive. So we were smart enough to know that. We were smart enough to effectively sell 40% of our business to give ourselves enough of a war chest yeah, to yeah. navigate that. Um, when you combined that with that theory of, of, of creative and experience and brand success that I talked about, and really at the heart of that was a belief that we would only be successful and we'd only navigate some of those challenges I just talked about if we built a hybrid brand that combined the best of what I didn't call then, but today I'd call DTC, I'd call direct consumer, the best of kind of direct consumer brand building and e-commerce. Yeah, yeah. Yeah with the traditional um, working model of working through a distributor and working through third-party retail and, and third-party and not choosing between those two, but building yes. that hybrid yeah, yeah, blended yeah, yeah. model where the brand is getting built and to an extent monetized over here, mm -hmm. which is then creating a halo effect, which is helping you build volume over here. Yeah, yeah. So we had a bit of a war chest and we had a theory of success. Yeah, but yeah. then because none of us were instinctively sort of number crunching commercial people, we just got on and did it. Well, there's a bravery in that, isn't there? Because I think sometimes if there is too much of a focus on the number crunching, tomorrow feels like it's scary. And and so and and again, I think when we've been talking to different entrepreneurs, that that bravery in the ambition that tomorrow is a further opportunity versus a problem coming your way, mm. I, I think there's a psyche there that I find quite interesting. Uh, and and again, you know, the fact that you didn't have that skill on day one I, it probably made you uh, not reckless is probably too strong a word but I, I think brave in making decisions that others wouldn't I think do. we were appropriately reckless you know <laughs> and, and but, but it was an interesting combination of, of appropriate recklessness and and real patience yeah yeah uh, you know you look at one of the products that has, has really come to define Four Pillars which is our bloody Shiraz gin yeah um there's a little bit of strategy in there. There's a little bit of, of expectations gone wrong. You know, when we printed our first cartons, we had three three products on the side and you could tick which one. And, you know, there was the Rare Dry Gym, which was the original gym we launched with. There was our Barrel Age Gym, which we did make, and that was the second gym we ever made. And then the third one was Slow Gin because... You know, we we just kind of went. Oh well, that's what that's what gin companies do. Look at Britain. Yeah, you know, they 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 make they make their core gin, then they make something a bit funky, and then they make a, a slow gin. And you know, two years in, we still hadn't made any slow gin, and people were asking, "When are you going to make it?" It's on the side <laughs> of your box, and we're like, "Well, Cameron's saying, well, I don't really like slow gin, 
and all the commercial stuff is far too sugary and sweet because slow berries aren't inherently sweet they're quite tart and so then you know the industrial ones end up tipping lots of sugar yeah, yeah. and they're over sweetened and he'd say back to people well, you're asking when are we going to make it how do you drink it and they go i don't drink it so we're like well we don't really want to make it people don't really seem to want it it's just a sort of a you know one of the kind of mores of the of the category that we can maybe ignore and then one day there's a little bit of shiraz fruit lying around in the winery that we were for the first two years we were making our gin in the in the back of someone else's winery mm-hmm. before we'd purchased our, our our distillery building that that today is the four pillars distillery um and there's just some shiraz fruit lying around and cameron steals it and <laughs> soaks you know pours high proof gin on top and you know that the, the shiraz grapes start to soak away in the gin he stirs it every day and after eight weeks he presses it and out comes the gin, all full of beautiful bloody colour yeah. and, and natural fruit sweetness. And I think it was about 500 bottles. We didn't even have a label for it. We just put a little neck tag on it to make it legal and we just sort of, you know, sold that little bootleg product. And today that's the gin that, that will arguably make Four Pillars famous yes. in really cluttered markets like the UK mm-hmm. um, where, you know, they've got dry gin for days and, and some of that place Shiraz gin from Australia can really cut through. Yeah. But that didn't come from a focus group. That didn't come from a, a sense of mm-hmm. there's an opportunity in coloured and flavoured gins. That that came from a, a reckless experiment. Yeah, yeah. But equally, yeah. when we saw how delicious this was and how crazy people were for it, we didn't then impatiently go, right, how do we scale it? Yeah. You know, we 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 pushed that through those theories that we had. So that became the next exciting product to launch to our database that made it meaningful and worthwhile mm-hmm. being a member of our database. And then the following year, we let some of that go out to independent retailers and gave them something to get excited about because now Rare Dry Gym was really flying at Dan Murphy's and in the chains. And yeah, the year yeah. after that, yeah. it went into Dan Murphy's because you know they needed to grab some of that. But by that time, we had new, funky, small batch stuff to push into the database. And so... Yeah. There was that combination of patience and, and a little bit of theory combined with just a, an experimental yeah. recklessness, and you put it all together, and, and it just works. Yeah. But none of it was particularly contrived or planned, and, and for the first five years, we weren't looking at any product through too forensic a financial lens mm-hmm. and going, well, wait a minute, have we figured out the cogs yeah. on bloody Shiraz and have yeah. we absolutely got the gross margin right yeah, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, looking for signs two weeks in, and... and to a great extent, there is a there's a certain tyranny of measurement that it can drive this mm-hmm. this short termism and this yep. this need to see performance today when when truly creative methods of of driving growth are going to take time to emerge and if it's if it's something that's going to deliver results tomorrow, yeah, it's probably also going to stop working about two weeks <laughs> later. Whereas if it's something that, that's working for the long haul you might see little signs that's working, which yes. is why that theory is so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's probably going to take a long time to measure. What did, uh, when you started, what did success look like for you guys? Was success building a brand and a business that you could scale and sell? Was success creating product that you can take to the UK and blast the market away? What, what, was, what was the ambition? I think it was all of those things. Yeah. But what was what is useful is to, is to get clear on what ambition or what definition of success is driving decision making, mm-hmm. and the answer to that 
was was really written in our purpose. Yeah. Which is, you know, and we, we've talked about the same thing since, you know, late 2012. Mm-hmm. Four Pillars exists to elevate the craft of distilling gin. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was really success, was, was making the most of the opportunity of making gin in Australia. Yeah. Like this is, without question, the most delicious place on earth. When you look at the combination of, of the produce that we can grow here, the, the native and indigenous botanicals we have access to here, and the incredible food culture that we have here, when you smash all of that together, there is no more delicious place on earth than, than modern Australia. Mm-hmm. And if gin is an expression of place, because apart from distilling juniper as your sort of base canvas, you can take gin in any direction you like through botanicals, through produce, through flavour references and inspiration. If Australia's the most delicious place, Australian gin should be able to be the most delicious, most diverse, most creative. So really the ambition was to do justice to that, uh, to explore that. The, The other bits of the purpose were about the craft of cocktail making. That's what's driven yeah. the opening of the Four Pillars Laboratory in, yeah, in Surrey yeah. Hills in Sydney to go, well, let's let's now explore drinks as much as we've explored gin. The third part was about really expressing and sharing the, the, the stories and the culture and the creativity of modern Australia and, and this pride that we've got in in contemporary Australia and in all of its all of its diversity, all of its creativity and, and, and not just, you know, perpetuating that sort of cliched sense of, of, of Australia but, but but really celebrating that that that, that contemporary and creative and, and diverse modern expression of Australia. Uh, and the fourth was, you know, doing the right thing by our community as we did all of those things. I think that was the important definition of success. Yeah. Did we want to create legacy? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Do we want to create something that's going to go the distance and, yeah. and last? Absolutely. Did that mean something that we'd be passing on to our kids or something that mm-hmm. someday someone will come and buy from us? I don't think we knew that. Yeah. And I think not having that in mind, to, to use the language of, of entrepreneurs, not having an exit in mind. Yeah was again something that fueled good decision making because it just then pushed you back yep. to purpose. Yeah, pushed yeah, yeah. you back to are we being the best four pillars we can be rather than how are the financials looking this month yes. and are we moving closer to that exit? Yep. And and by not having that in our in our tar- in our sort of, you know, in our sights, by not thinking excessively commercially, by not having that impatience, I think we we took decisions that were consistently on purpose and on strategy and, and, and sort of aligned with that sense of, of the gin and the brand that we wanted to mm-hmm. create and sort of trusted that that would, would turn into the yeah. outcomes we wanted. Yeah. And then when you, if you don't mind me asking, when the Lion Partnership started to come into mm. fruition, how, how did that feel? And, and then how did that go against the purpose and... <sighs> You know, as an Look, entrepreneur that started something that you then yeah, not pass it, control but share. I mean, first of all, those things are always going to place you somewhere on the spectrum between fear and excitement. <laughs> and you're just hoping that you're about the right balance between those two. Fear that someone's going to come in and break it and excitement that someone might help you take it to the next level. Um, I think when Lion started having conversations with us it 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 felt it was probably a couple of years earlier than we expected Mm -hmm. anything like that to happen at the same time it started happening a lot from many different angles and so you went okay well the universe is 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 telling us something that Mm -hmm. you know there is there is a broad 
spectrum of, of interest in what we're up to. And some of that interest was from from global businesses and, and other interest was from local businesses. Some of it was from sources of funding. Yeah. And some of it was from industry players. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we looked at it and, and went, well, we don't really think we're broken, but we think we could do with some help to take this thing yeah, to the to next accelerate. level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we got pretty clear and I remember doing the uh, the session with all of our staff on the on the morning before the, the Lion partnership was announced and saying to them, look, you know, we can be we can be really proud of the fact that we've not built a commercial business here. We've built a business based on making better gin. Yeah. You know, it says on the side of every Four Pillars bottle, don't drink more, drink better. And we, <laughs> and we do that. We help people drink better, better made, better tasting gin in better made, better tasting gin drinks. We're not a complicated business. We're not yeah. selling people a dream that's based on nothing. We're, we're simply making a, a superior product. We're creating jobs in regional Australia. We're, we're behaving in, in great ways. We're, we're, we're a brand that people love being associated with. So anything that someone can then do to help us grow that is a noble cause. Yeah. You know, and, and we can feel really comfortable that we, you know, we can talk about marketing and talk about sales and talk about growth and it's not icky. It's, it's actually just spreading the word. It's yeah, spreading yeah. the good stuff. And so when you've got that sense that you're on the right side of history and you're building something that's yeah. fundamentally good and, and fundamentally based on better, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the reasons I find, sorry to digress, but I, I, you know, I find some of the debates about you know, in, in, in marketing at the moment about what's more important, is it to be a, a, a differentiated brand or a distinctive brand? And, and you know, I go back to the, the, the endless brand strategy and business strategy sessions I've run and, and talking to clients about differentiation. Mm-hmm. And so many people don't believe you can be differentiated simply by being better. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. think they need a, a, a positioning that's sort of captured in a clever form of words. No, that, no, no. That no one's going, you go, but, but what about if you just did stuff better? <laughs> and then you could, and it's not going to be better for everyone, it's going to be better for someone. And yeah. then we can articulate who that someone is and we can deliver that betterness in the form of, of product and story and experience that they really yeah. value. And I think because we've always had that clarity about what we're doing and, and, and why it is so fundamentally good. We talk a lot internally about being makers, not marketers, about yeah, being yeah. driven by quality, not quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was then quite easy to come to terms with taking on a partner as long as yeah. we were clear They're that they fuel. were going to help us yep. scale, they were yep. going to bring fuel, exactly, but what they weren't going to do was corrupt. They yep. weren't going to change. And we had that real confidence with the guys at Lion that yep. they were really passionate about Australian-born and grown mm-hmm. brands. They were They were really passionate about seeing us fulfill our potential and being part of a an Australian spirits movement that wasn't constrained to being cottage size but could really take on the world yeah and they had no desire to fix us because they didn't think we were broken and they wanted just to let us keep doing what we were doing yeah, yeah. And, and and grow all the good stuff that, that was already going on and so how do you feel seven years into the journey I'm tired. <laughs> uh, and that's driven by it's just been a slog. Do you get breaks? Like how? Yeah, look, at, I mean, it, it is it is relentless, um, but it's it's good relentless. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think I think it's really important to be honest. I've really been feeling at the moment through COVID that, that we 
we we live in a business culture right now where there's sometimes an excess of positivity, mm-hmm. and I think that's I think that's dishonest, and I, I think particularly. You know, in the, in the in the lockdown, I've you know every time I've done a, a podcast or a webinar or, or even just a you know a virtual coffee with someone, I've always just stressed to people: look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, survival is success at the yeah, moment. And, and you I know, totally let, agree. Let's, let's not, you know, feel the need to tell everyone how awesome we are mm-hmm. and everything is all of the time because it's not true and it's not fair. It's no. not fair on people who are doing it tough. Yeah. Um, the, the truth is, it's been it's been a good slog. Um, it, we have grown so quickly that every time you feel you've mastered the realities of today, a new reality shows up yep. tomorrow and another gin to launch, another market to go into, another experience to yes. create, another yep. team to grow. Mm-hmm. The corner I think we've turned in the last 12 months has been to bring in more of a, a senior leadership team. I think you know inevitably when you scale a founder-led business where the founders are fully involved, so, you know, Three or four years in, Stu and I started to do a couple of days a week in. By 2018, we were really yeah. getting out of our consultancies. Yeah. And, and then when we did the Lion deal, we both went in full-time. So you've got three full-time founders really running the business. And, yeah. and so typically what then happens is you put a strong mid-tier in. Mm-hmm. And what can be missing is that senior leadership tier because, frankly, you can't afford it yeah. at first. Yeah. So now we've, we've, we've got a great senior leadership team right. and, and, and that sense of there are grown-ups in the business other than us, probably more grown-up than we are. <laughs> um, and so that means that now a higher percentage of the slog is focused on the right stuff yeah. because you've got professional people who are focused on the stuff that they're truly world-class at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm finding myself in the last six months getting a higher percentage of my time is, is in sort of creative value generation it's it's sort of thinking about okay well what's the next what's the next product what's the next creative brand platform what's the next thing that we can do that i can then you know work on with Stu and work on with cam and then hand to the business and go right well here's the next yep you know here's more ammunition yeah yeah, stuff to go and play with Yeah, yeah yeah before I was trying to balance doing that with with being on the tools, mm-hmm. you know, being very mm-hmm. involved in 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 that sort of activation of the brand. Whereas now, hopefully, I can be more in that, yeah, in that yeah, creative yeah. space, yeah, um, and effectively almost be an in-house creative consultancy to the business, yeah. Because yeah. it's it's hard, as you know, to think at yeah, both you've got to find altitudes and both speeds at, at the same time. It's 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 really difficult to be operationalizing the brand and managing the brand in real time and thinking about where the brand goes next and what's going to fuel that next leap for it. How do you manage your time? We've we've had quite a few conversations with people about how they manage their day, their week, personal time versus professional time. How do you make it work? I I honestly don't know if I do. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, I... (sighs) How do you try? (laughs) I use use Outlook's calendar. Um... (laughs) Uh, the, the honest answer is I, I everything goes into my calendar. Yeah. So every I schedule every bit of working time. Yeah, so if yeah. I need to spend two hours working on a film script, You're gonna, I schedule yeah. that in my Outlook calendar. If yeah, I yeah. need to spend an afternoon thinking about a, a new product that we're developing and just just you know going for a walk and thinking about the positioning, I, I schedule it in. I I don't leave I don't leave creative work to chance mm-hmm. and hope that it will happen at some mm-hmm. stage because it won't. Um, so that's a very pedestrian answer yeah. to a much more profound question. But it's, it's, <laughs> I, I manage my time by managing my time yeah, yeah, and no, by no. identifying the jobs that need to be done and, yeah. and, and diarising those and holding myself to account for yeah. did they get done. Yeah. Um, in my past life, 
the incredible value that I found on, on the agency side was, you know, when I, when I joined a creative agency in 2006, I met this kind of breed of human called a producer and I'd never <laughs> really met producers before. And I was like, oh, these guys are incredible. Like they just create order and structure yeah, and they yeah. turn the vague possibility that something might happen into it happening. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, from an agency point of view, you, you, you'd, you know, my job in, in that agency was to introduce a level of, of strategic thinker, thinking that, that, that sort of married up with their great creative abilities and their great creative production abilities. Mm-hmm. But you'd always sort of say to clients, like, you know, that the, the strategic value we can add is, is only half of the value. The other yeah. is we're actually good at getting stuff done. Delivery is really important. client, are terrible <laughs> at getting anything done. Um, and, you know, so, so it's interesting. It's been interesting yeah. for me now in, in this world where, you know, we don't have a business full of producers, mm-hmm. so it's much more... It's sort of it's a combination of being on me, yeah, self manage to, to, to self manage, but it's also there's a little bit. But that's the push stuff. The other thing is just re- respecting the fact that I might be one of the co-founders, but my job is to be an asset to the business. Mm-hmm. And so if if my marketing director, or my commercial directors, or my finance director need something, or even I, you know, a head of design or head of events, I work for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the other side of it is knowing yeah. what I'm very good at. And, and going, look, this is available you. to you guys. Yeah, yeah. You need to tell me what you need and when you need it, and, and you manage me. So it's a, it's a combination yes. of being really open and, and making sure the whole business knows I'm a resource, I'm, I'm fully retained by the business, so I don't <laughs> cost you anything, and it's your job to manage me to get what you yeah, need yeah, out yeah. of me. But they don't know what they don't know. What they don't know is what the next thing is, so that's yes. where I then have to self-manage yeah, 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 my time yeah, yeah. to be creating to get- the next things. Where do you look for inspiration? You just mentioned, you know, if you creative time, you go out for a walk. Like, where do you, where, where are you inspired? God, isn't that the world's worst cliche? Um, <laughs> it's, it's not, no, because space is helpful. It, it, look, it, it is, and there's lots of, you know, lots of helpful understanding of brain chemistry that, you know, we, yep. we fire up the neurons and make more connections when we're walking on uneven ground and all that stuff. Yep. Look, I mean, I think I'm reading, um, reading Adam Ferrier's book at the moment about stop listening to your customer that one and, yeah. and Rory Sutherland and, and um, I think where I don't look for inspiration is is customer research yeah, yeah. I don't look for inspiration in our category mm-hmm. um, I, I've always been a great consumer of um, of sort of creative arts of, of many forms and, yeah. and whether that's visual art or dance I'm, I'm, a, I'm a film obsessive mm-hmm. um, so and I've always had a natural suspicion of people in creative agencies who don't consume a lot of yeah, yeah. creative arts. Like yeah, you've got to be a cultural magpie. I find that strange. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, people who think they're going to get their creative inspiration by reading a lot of books about creativity and a lot of marketing theory books, again, like you're not going to find it in airports. Yeah. Um, you're going to find it in the world. Um, I'm also an obsessive, not obsessive, that's too strong. I'm a passionate shopper. I love mm-hmm. shopping. Do you? I love I love the experience of shopping, and I'm, I'm physical I'm or digital, both. Yeah, but particularly physical. Okay. And I'm really interested always in in looking at how that's evolving and looking at the way that customer experience is evolving. I was say, is that I'm, your experience background coming through? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I love hospitality. I love hotels. I love restaurants. I love bars. I love yeah. bricks and mortar retail. I love watching yeah. how experiences are curated and experiences unfold and what makes them good and what makes them bad. And yeah. I guess I like to think about those as well and watch people and mm-hmm. and and. So that real physical world experience, but 
you know, when I do keynotes on this stuff, I always talk about this notion of, 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 of sandwich experiences and peacock experiences. And, and I think, you know, what's really easy to, to, to see is that the sandwich stuff, the convenient stuff yeah. and, and go, okay, well, what frustrates people and yeah, what yeah. smooths their passage through the world? And you could stand around in Coles and Woolies all day and look at whether people enjoy self-checkout or not. And I think our business landscape tends to over-index on that very uncreative form of experience yes. thinking. And so a lot of, you know, human-centered design and CX workshops, they tend mm -hmm. to focus on this sandwichy stuff yeah, about yeah. what irritates the and function. what frustrates. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm probably more interested in what delights. Yeah, the, yeah. the peacocky stuff, the stuff that stands out, the yeah. stuff that's just kind of yeah. beautiful and interesting and, and, and draws people in and... and um, I mm -hmm. tend to get drawn to that. So, you know, brands I love at the moment, I'm, I'm, I am actually obsessed with Gentle Monster, which is a, an eyewear brand in, in Korea. Um, and oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Founded by a, yeah, a, 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 an academic who sort of came out of the, the, the creative world and, and, you know, they just use retail as sort of experiential theatre. You know, they, they just... Mm -hmm. Retail for them is a reason, is a, is a magnus, is a reason to, to draw people and draw the eye and then yeah, within yeah. that they almost hide their product. They sort of turn the rules of, <laughs> of retail upside down. It's often impossible to find, find what the need. gentle monster eyewear in these kind of immersive art That's installations funny. that are their stores, but they're they're extraordinary. Yeah, 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 and they stand out in a in a world of total sameness. So yeah, I, I guess you know I'm, I I like looking at different categories and, and yeah. different experiences and, and then see and, what you can steal and steal there, yeah, and then yeah. on the other side steal creatively. Like you know, I think one of the things I'm most proud of in in my little contribution to Four Pillars. At the end of the day, Four Pillars is is eighty percent. The incredible gin that Cameron makes. It's it's fifteen percent the incredible relationships that Stu's enabled us to build. And then it's just five percent of a little bit of icing and cherry on top that yeah. I've helped to to curate. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of is our relationship with designers and artists and recognizing that we have the ability to give them a, a, a canvas yeah, to create on. Yeah. Um, and so that's the other side of it. It's you know, it's thinking about who's gonna who's gonna be the next artist to mm -hmm. do our our Christmas gin label or yeah, who's the so next illustrator who can create a, a limited edition bottle for yep. um, for bloody Shiraz or what's the next design reference that we can be inspired by but definitely not steal from because there's nothing worse than corporate <laughs> yes. theft of, of art um, that we can be inspired by for yes. a, a particular label or a particular collaboration. And, and do you find, final question, uh, do you find you've talked a lot when you talked about uh, purpose modern Australia, creativity in modern Australia was something you talked a lot about and, you know, the ingredients of modern Australia. You, you, do you find a lot of inspiration from artists, illustrators, brands, businesses in modern Australia? Do you see us as a creative nation? Do you think we need to do more? Because it's, it's interesting, you know, you and I had a conversation, I think, about three, four months ago and we talked about the creativity of modern Australia and brands that are pushing it forward both here and then on a global stage and... And it didn't feel like there was, you know, there's not a hundred brands doing that. It's mm. probably ten. You know, what's your view on how we're performing creatively as a nation, both creative in an artistic sense, but also in an entrepreneurial sense? Mm. So that's quite a big question to end with. It's a huge question that I'm completely underqualified to answer, <laughs> but I, I'll inevitably have have opinions. Look, I mean, I think I think Australia is inherently. A, a very creative place. I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you think about some of the ingredients of, of creativity, there's a there's a permission to be different here. Yeah. Um, there's a great 
cultural diversity here um and those things can be great fuel for creativity um there's also you know pre-pandemic there's enough money here because creativity also takes mm-hmm. a certain amount of sponsorship like you know it, it it requires people who are willing to pay for it yeah um so some of the conditions are here um do i think our artistic creative scene is in great shape right now probably not mm-hmm. and you know covid is is really threatening that and if that doesn't flourish then it's hard to see the commercial side of yep. of the creative economy and creative culture mm-hmm. flourishing so that that gives me some cause for concern yeah i think where probably where your question's going then where this breaks down a bit is when you head up towards the bigger end of town mm-hmm. and you then say okay well if 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 modern Australia is this really creative place and there is this kind of maverick instinct, uh, this willingness to be different, this willingness to take risks, is that reflected in our more commercial creative yeah. culture? And I don't think it is. Yeah. I think, strangely, some kind of disconnect happens where you look at, you know, with a couple of notable exceptions, you know, one one brand I, I have always admired and just continue to admire is Qantas. Yeah. I think Qantas does a phenomenal job of... Of articulating Qantasness through its stories, through its experiences, through its, you know, even the liveries on its on its planes, the, yeah. the, 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 and the and the in-flight films. They, they, I think, they get a lot right that I don't see regularly across corporate mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah, and I, if I'm honest, I don't think many leaders in corporate Australia have the level of faith that they should because it is a faith-based discipline creativity yeah. i don't think enough have the level of faith that they should that true creativity can create business value and mm-hmm. can drive their growth and i don't know if that's their fault or if it's the fault of the senior marketers who yeah. advise them i don't know if it's the fault of the way that marketers in australia and maybe in the world are trained uh, the way that their careers develop I don't think there's enough appreciation of brand. Yeah. And I think often where, you know, creativity needs a structure to happen within. And I think if you've got a really, really clear sense of your brand and what it stands for, and actually I I mentioned Adam Ferrier, you know, and he talks about in his book uh, some of the really sort of opportunistic, fast turnaround stuff they did for Vegemite. And he Mm -hmm. talks about how it came from the clarity of the brand platform that they yeah, have yeah. to Vegemite and that then well, fuels the creative risk-taking. <laughs> it fuels the ability to play, exactly. I think probably what I'm getting at is there isn't enough deep understanding of, of brand and the value of brand at the top end of Australian yeah. business and that then translates into somewhat pedestrian approaches to creativity. So, you know, short short summary to my long-winded answer, <laughs> I do think that, that, that Australia is and has the potential to be a very creative place. And I think if you look at at pockets of creativity... Which says a a lot. You can find them and they're exciting. Yeah. I don't think that's translating into our corporate scene. Yeah. And we're probably leaving a lot of value on the table by underestimating the value of our brands and the contribution that, that creative thinking and creative ideas and creative experiences could make to grow in that value. And how can we get there? As in, is it is it you talk about training? Uh, is it as a as a country, new world type businesses like the Canvas or the Atlassians having more of a voice with seemingly 
potentially more maverick leaders that are going to take bets on a the world's largest wooden story building. You, you, you know, because yep. then corporate America, sorry, corporate Australia starts to change. You mm. know, the people we look at are people that are fighting creatively for common causes mm. uh, versus just corporate causes. And so I wonder if that shift's going to help us, if they're, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, if there's going to be new bastions of corporate culture that we look at that actually have a gene that isn't just greed or commerce potentially <laughs> i think i think look i think you're right and and um you know the best way to teach people the value of these things is to do it yourself yes sure. and 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 create the create the exemplar and um but maybe it's also about what we what we celebrate as a culture and yeah. what we value as a culture and how we celebrate those successes and tell and share those stories um and the way that we choose to measure things of value and, and, and what we choose to to put on a pedestal and say this mm-hmm. is this is truly extraordinary and it's not just an EBIT result and it's not just a share price but yeah. it is a, a sense of value creation and, yeah. and bravery and uh, and all of those things. So look, I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a quick journey. I think creative agencies have have a role to play. Maybe that's the other side of it that you know you yeah. guys are trying to drive as well. It's it's you know it's also a willingness to be brave on on that side. You mm-hmm. know if, if we need our most creative people. To not simply keep telling their clients to make another TV ad, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to apply yeah. those creative capabilities, both to, as we just discussed, to think creatively and then produce creatively, yeah, do something, don't say something, to apply those things to things that are, are, are real and material, and 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 not simply driving their revenue. So I think it's almost like a collective leap, you know. Yeah. Better agencies need to find better clients and better businesses and do better work that yeah. will then inspire the more mediocre, the 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 less bold to, to to sort of join them on that journey. Yeah. I think that's a great way to finish. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed catching up. Good chat. Awesome. Thanks mate. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being a part of 72 Voices the podcast series. Stay tuned for the next round coming soon.